So we're in the Advent season. Uh, Christmas is here, and last week we started. So there's four weeks that make up the Advent season. That started last week, and it leads up to the week before Christmas. And all Advent is is it's anticipating, it's expecting, it's it's uh, waiting for the coming of Christ. And Advent means beginning. Like something is beginning, something is stirring in our hearts, and we are just waiting for Jesus. And I told you guys last week that these four weeks are like a like microcosmic picture of what the larger Advent is that we're currently living in. Because we are, as a church, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting for his return. And each year we celebrate this in four weeks. And we celebrate Jesus' birth and when he, when he first came, the very first Advent. And, and so that's what we're doing. We're in week two of that. We're in a series called BC, Before Christmas, where we're, we've been asking the question, what would your life look like without Christmas? What, what would it be like? Would it be any different? And we hit that a little bit last week. Um, and we talked about Wonderful Counselor. And this week we'll go into Mighty God. And then we'll do Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And throughout this whole series, we really want to give you guys a picture of who God is, who this Messiah is, who this Savior is, who this Jesus is that we're waiting for, that all of history was waiting uh, for in the first advent, that we're waiting for in the second advent, that we always celebrate in the four weeks of advent leading up to Christmas every year, who is this Jesus? And we want to give you guys a really full picture, an accurate picture of who he is. And that's why we're going through these four titles of Jesus. And so think about, to yourself, think about this. Like how accurate of a picture do you really have of God? How accurate would you say your, your picture of God is? Like how well do you really know God? This might help you. Think about, think about this. How, how well do you know me, you think? So a lot of you guys, your exposure to me, your, your interaction with me is very unilateral because it's just from here to there. A lot of what you guys know about me is, is here. Now, some of you guys um, serve with me. Some of you guys are in my home for our body life group. Some of you guys... Uh, you know, through discipleship relationships, through counseling, through different things, have, have a deeper relationship with me. Um, one of you guys helped me rake my leaves yesterday. Like, so you have a, like, there's different ways you can, you can get to know me better. But for some of you guys, this is the extent of your relationship with me. It's just from up here to there, and you think you know me. Um, now, if you do know me, you, you'll know that I'm actually pretty easily transparent. Pretty much what you see is, is what you get. Like, I'm not, I don't have very many layers. I'm not an ogre. I'm more like the donkey. Some of you guys are like, yeah, you are, you are. Uh, like, uh, so I don't have a problem sharing my thoughts or my feelings. Uh, if you were to spend time with me, you would find that out. You would be able to, you would know my dreams very easily. You would know my struggles. You would know my strengths, my gifts, my weaknesses, my sin. I don't have any qualms of sharing those, those things. You would know what makes me angry. You know what makes me sad. You know what 
Uh, it, I'm very easily transparent that way. The only thing that's stopping you from getting to know me, then, is your choice of whether to do so or not. Your choice of whether to spend time with me outside of this, this arena or not. Now think about God. Go back to the original question. How well do you know God? Now for some of you, you know God through other people. Other people have told you a bunch of things about God. I'm telling you things about God. And what you're doing is you're living off of somebody else's spirituality. You're living off of a, a preacher's spirituality, a, a pastor's, your parents' spirituality, and, and their relationship. But you don't really know God. You know God through somebody else's relationship with God, perhaps. For some of you, you know God from a distance because you've, you, you know God through the culture and what the culture says God should be like. Well, God should be, God should be all loving. You know, if God is all loving, then he's not going to send anybody to hell, for instance. We hear that all the time. Um, and that's how you know God, through what the culture says God should be like. Well, if God is all good, then he's going to be like this. Well, if God is all this, then he's going to be like this. And you take what the culture says, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, who, God, that's who God is. That's who God should be. And the only thing stopping you from knowing God is choosing to spend time with God or not. Because guess what, guys? God is easily transparent. God is fully transparent in his character, actually. This book right here, this Bible, the Holy Scriptures, it tells us all about God's character. If you want to know God, you just have to read this. It's not, it's not that difficult. You don't have to do anything else except read this, spend time with God's people, and uh, interpret this together. And, uh, but for most of us, we spend our time knowing God in this top section. And that's the extent of what you guys might know about God, just this New Testament right here. Most of you spend your time in the New Testament. And we don't know anything about who God is in all these other pages. This is like 66% of the Bible right here that I'm flipping through. And, and we don't know God. We get our God from here. And now, a lot of us, we even lop off the last book. We lop off Revelation, right? We're like, what is that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that's saying. Uh, except, except chapter 22. We keep Revelation 22 because it talks about the new heavens and the new earth and like river of life. And we're like, yeah, yeah, I get that. Uh, I like that. But the rest of Revelation, we're like, no, no. Uh, so we take that part off and we just have this. And now some of us, uh, we, we know pieces of the Gospels, you know, and we, we don't like some of, like, we don't like some of the books, that, some of the letters Paul writes, so Galatians, Romans, we're like, ah, I, don't, I don't know. So then we're actually really only spending our time here. And that's all you might know of God, this little couple millimeter section of who God is. But, and this is the problem with knowing God from culture or from living on other people's spirituality and other people's relationship or however you think you know God. It's because if that's all you know of God, you have a very anemic and distorted picture of who God is. Your picture of God is like a Picasso painting. You know, it's, it's like the eyes are here and the mouth is like somewhere down there. It's, it's like distorted or it's like a Jackson Pollard. It's like 
splatter here, splatter there, yeah, let's throw some red over there, yeah, I think God is yellow over here, and it's just like, it's, it's all mixed up. You need, and this, this book is, is knowing, we, if we're going to know God, we need to know the entirety of this book, okay? And, and like I say, God is easily transparent with who he is. He's not hiding it. He's saying, this is who I am, and, and we'll walk through it with these four things over the next uh, couple weeks as well. Um, and all you have to do is read this. All you have to do is get to know me by reading this and spending time with me. When we talk about wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, a lot of us, we love that God is full of wisdom. So we don't have any problem with wonderful counselor. We're like, yeah, we like that Jesus, wonderful counselor. We, we want that Jesus. We don't have any problem with him being prince of peace. We want, we want Jesus to bring peace and reconciliation and justice to our situations. We love that about Jesus. We don't have any problems, most part. Um, I guess sometimes it's going to depend on your relationship with your father, on everlasting father. We love that God is a father who constantly pursues us and relentlessly does so because he just loves us that much and he will never give up on us. And we love that about God. But when it comes to mighty God, we don't know if we like that or not. And some of us aren't so sure about, about that. Like, what, what, what does that mean? Do, do, we, do I like that God is, is a mighty God? And you say, well, yeah, I, I like that God fights the, for the weak. I like that he fights for those who are oppressed. I like that God is, is the God who's, who's going to um, stand up for what's good and righteous, and, and he's going to administer justice. I, I like that type of God. Uh, so yeah, I think I do like a mighty God. But do you like the God who says, you can't come into my presence because I'm holy and you're sinful? Do you like that mighty God? Do you like the mighty God who says in, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 31 here, verse 30 and 31, he says, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water, and the strong shall become tender for the fire. And his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together. Like, do we like that mighty God? Or the one in, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse, verse 21, who says, In that day, you guys are going to flee from me, from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty, when he rises to terrify the earth. Like, do we like that type of God? Is that the mighty God we like? Do we like the mighty God in, in Jesus who says, if you don't take up your cross daily and die to yourself and follow me, then you're not worthy of me? Are you guys okay with, with that mighty God? Now, if we, if we want a full picture of who God is, of who the Messiah is, of who Jesus is, then we've got to accept the hard things with the, the things that we generally think are, are the good things. We gotta take we gotta take both things. And and we can't fully understand who God is as mighty God unless unless we know this book from the beginning to the end. And this is one of our issues. Most of us are actually biblically illiterate. We're not very literate in the scriptures. 
And just, just take hot, hot button issues. So homosexuality, abortion, um, uh, capital punishment around the world, uh, war, um, uh, gender roles. Um, I mean, I can go on. There's all these like hot, hot bun issues. When we, when we know God, those issues, uh, those those issues aren't as hot button as as uh, we think they are. And the Bible isn't a proof text. And for some of you guys, on those specific issues, you, what you think you know of God is based on specific scriptures of God. But if you don't know biblical theology, if you don't know the, how those themes are traced through the scriptures, then you're only taking pieces, and you only know a piece of the larger whole. If you don't know historical theology and how the church has interpreted these through millennia, through hundreds and thousands of years, then then uh, your, your understanding of God is very myopic and it's very culturally based and it's very right now. And so all those issues that I just mentioned uh, that we think are, are brand new issues that we're dealing with today in our times aren't brand new issues. The church has dealt with them for thousands and thousands of years. And they've been, there's things that have been tried and tested and true. And the mighty God has reigned over all those things and, and caused the church to persevere and preserved orthodoxy and preserve the church. And, and that's where we see biblical theology and historical theology coming into our entire picture of who God is. And so as we go through these four titles, we really want you to understand who this Jesus is. We want you to understand, yes, he's a wonderful counselor, but what does that mean in the story of the scriptures? And we talked about that last week, so if you missed last week, you can listen to that sermon online. And then today as we talk about mighty God, I want you to have a full picture of what mighty God is, of, 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 of how he works in and through the impossible. And when, and when we see impossibility, the mighty God sees opportunity. And, and, and that's the God that uh, is prophesied, that's the Messiah that's coming, that's a Savior, that's Advent, that's who we're waiting for and hoping for and expecting to come. But it has to happen uh, through this statement. And we're going to see this in, in the book of Isaiah. So remember the statement throughout, throughout the sermon. Uh, this is generally what I will call the bottom line of the sermon, but I always give it at, at the beginning. It is, the might of God requires death to your person in order to give life to your purpose. So when we understand mighty God, we should understand mighty God in this that he requires death to your person in order to give life to your purpose. So in the book of Isaiah, the people of God are in a very desperate, desolate situation. So uh, in, in the very beginning, I told you last, last week that chapters 1 and 2 are, are a microcosm of the entire book of, of Isaiah. So all 66 chapters of Isaiah, of Isaiah, we can actually understand if we understand chapters 1 and 2 here. And here we have... Isaiah talking about judgment, and then we have this passage on hope in chapter 2, and the church and the bride of Christ is in chapter 2, and then we go into chapter 3, 4, and 5, and again, we have, we have judgment, and when I say judgment, God is administering justice. So the people of God are no longer the people of God. 
They've forsaken God. They've forsaken his ways. God says, I know what's best for you. And they said, no, we know what's best for us. It's the age-old sin. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. God says, I know what's best. They said, no, actually, we're God. We know what's best. And we're going to eat from that tree. And that's what Israel is doing now. They're saying, no, no, God, you're not mighty anymore. We're mighty. And we're going to choose what we know is best. And we know how to choose between good and evil. And we're going to choose this. And God says, that's not the best for you. That's not your purpose. That's not why I created you. Uh, That's not who you are. And because of that, all these consequences are coming on to Israel. And, and, And the people of God... Uh, are, are being purged and cleansed and, and consecrated here. And out of this in chapter 4, uh, there's hope again. So we have judgment, hope, judgment, hope in 4. And, and in 4 it's mentioned the branch of the Lord, this righteous branch is going to be raised. And it's going to be beautiful and glorious. And there's going to be fruit of the land. And it will be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, the remnant. And then we go back to destruction. And we go back to this impossible situation and hard times. And then chapter 6, Isaiah comes on the scene, and his calling happens. And, and uh, it says, the Lord is high and lifted up, sitting on the throne. It's this, it's this picture of the mighty God. And Isaiah, and the, all the angels sing, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of glory, full of his glory. And Isaiah comes in, and, and God says, wait, you're unclean. And you need to be consecrated, and you need to be purified. And this happens to Isaiah. And basically, this is a picture of Isaiah dying to himself. It's dying to his sin. It's dying to his old ways. And God says, I'm going to give you a new purpose, and it's to be this voice for Israel. And then, again, Conan is 7, we see destruction on the house of David, on the house of Israel again. And then hope. God says there will be a sign, and the sign, his name will be Emmanuel. His name will be God with us, and he'll come, and, and he'll, he'll, um, uh, he'll be with you. And he says all these other things about him. And then he says in chapter 8, there's judgment again. Assyria, this nation of Assyria, is going to come in, and they're going to invade. And then, and then he says, don't fear them. He says, fear me. And you see this picture of the mighty God again. And he says, fear, God says, fear me. Don't fear them. You know, the, well, I'll get to this in a second. Um, and then he goes into chapter 9. This is what, what Kelly read this morning. And, and chapter 9 is this. There will be a Davidic ruler. There will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He will sit on the throne. He will fulfill all these prophecies. So hope again. And then judgment at the end of chapter 9. And chapter 10 Assyria, and he says, and he prophesies that this remnant is going to come, and this they will rise up. And then we get to chapter 11, and this is actually the chapter that I'm preaching through this morning, or the first 10 verses of it, going through uh, chapter 11 of Isaiah. And we get to chapter 11, and it's desolate. It's, Israel was supposed to be this light for the nations, And instead, chapter 11 starts off and it says that Israel is now a stump. They're a stump of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. And the Messiah is 
is the one who's going to be the ruler who's fulfilling this prophecy of David to establish the kingdom in the house of David forever. House of David just being this, this um, uh, metaphor for the people of God. And Jesse is the father of David. So when it says the stump of Jesse, it sounds kind of weird because Jesse is like a normal name we use today. Uh, but the stump of Jesse was David's father. And so Israel was supposed to be this light. There's supposed to be this big tree. Has anyone ever been to Muir Woods, Redwoods? Yeah, you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fremont over there. Yeah. So uh, Muir Woods, giant sequoias in inland California. Like these... These trees, these redwood trees uh, in Muir Woods are, I can't, I can't even describe them. Like, I'm going to tell you right now, and it's going to fall flat. But they're so grand. They're so majestic. You know, those trees have been there for centuries. Their roots, their roots are so uh, intricate and so uh, outspread. And uh, these trees are just massive. Like, I mean... I've never seen anything like this. It's just, it's just phenomenal. And when you stand there and you're in, in the forest there, you're just in awe. And you're just in, you're just like, you just see the grandeur and the beauty. That's what Israel was supposed to be. They're supposed to be a redwood. They're supposed to be a giant sequoia. They're supposed to be this tree that was pointing to the awe and grandeur and majesty and wonder of God. Instead, in chapter 11, verse 1, they've been reduced to a stump. They're, they've been chopped down, maybe been burned. Uh, that imagery is used in, in um, chapter 6. They, they've been burned. So they're this, all that remains, maybe they've been ground down. All that remains is this, is this charred, cracked, ugly, reprehensible mess of a tree. You can't even tell there was a tree there. And that's what's left of Israel. That's what's left of, of the people of God at this point. It's, it's just, it's desolate. Now, why would a mighty God allow that to happen? Why would a mighty God actually orchestrate that to happen? What can God do with that? It's dead. We look at it and we're like, that's impossible. There's no life there. It's charred, it's cracked, it's, that's not a tree. That doesn't point to beauty and grandeur. That doesn't point to majesty. But have you ever seen something beautiful arise out of something ugly? So I, I used to live in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and this is the southwest U.S. It's, it's very desolate, and it's, it's a desert. Um, there aren't, there's not a whole lot of green. Uh, there, there's not, there's hardly any vegetation. There's, there's literally, if you've seen a western, there's tumbleweeds, like, that roll along the, along the street. If you've seen a western, a western movie. Um, and uh, there's two things that are so unique about Albuquerque, is that even though it's flat desert, um, uh, there's some green. And so there's green right around the river. The Rio Grande River runs right through the center of Albuquerque, and there's all these trees right around the river. So you can see it. It's the valley. Like, it, it goes into this valley, and you can see it from, 
from where, you know, if you're on, you're on the other sides of the valley. And it's just beautiful. And then another thing about Albuquerque is that the Rocky Mountains actually extend into New Mexico. So a lot of people think they stop, um, I don't know, further up north, but they extend all the way down to the southwest U.S. Albuquerque is actually a mile above sea level. And, and you, have, you have these mountains that, so it's flat, and then you, these mountains, 10,000 feet high, just shoot up out of, out of the desert. And it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. And also every year in Albuquerque, they have this thing called the International Balloon Fiesta. And it's all hot air balloons every year in October. And at the festival, they do this thing called Mass Ascension. And you know hot air balloons. They're really multicolored. They're vibrant. They're bright. You don't see too many, like, brown hot air balloons. Like, they're all, like, bright and vibrant. So when Mass Ascension happens, all 500-plus, however many there are, hot air balloons ascend at the same time, and they litter the sky um, in Albuquerque. And if you're standing up here where they're in the valley, if you're standing up, up on the sides of the bowl, it just looks phenomenal. And it transforms the landscape. It transforms the desert uh, into something beautiful. And that's the imagery we have here, that we have this desolate, charred piece of stump. And now... A sprout. Something is shooting out. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Just a little sprout. But not only that, he says, and a branch. And what do you think a branch means? Well, there's a tree. So out of this charred remains, God's going to raise up a new tree. And from this branch, and this this alludes back to the branch that I mentioned in Isaiah chapter 4, and actually... There's only a few places in the scriptures where the branch is mentioned. So Isaiah chapter 4, Isaiah chapter 11 twice, down in verse 10 as well. And then Paul talks about Jesus as the righteous branch in Romans chapter 15, verse 12. And, and so Paul picks up on this imagery in Romans. And, and so the branch here, uh, he says, is coming out from this tree, uh, and it shall bear fruit. So we don't just have like a little weed, we don't have a little leaf. We got a tree with a branch and fruit that is coming out of these charred remains. And it's just beautiful. And this fruit, and this is what biblical theology does for you guys. Um, this fruit immediately makes you think of something in the scriptures of Psalm chapter 1. And Psalm chapter 1 is this hinge in the scriptures. If, you, if, you, if you're reading the scriptures, how all the way through how they're meant to be read, uh, and you get to Psalm chapter 1, like it's a hinge, like something would switch for you. It would just totally uh, like hit you in the stomach when you got there. You're like, whoa, this is, this is super unique. Um, and so this is Psalm chapter 1. Uh, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way, the path, of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, instruction, the word of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And here's, here's, a, here's, here's the kicker. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
And then he goes on and he says, the wicked aren't that way, but the righteous are that way. And we read here in Psalm 11, I mean, in Isaiah 11, which is happening after Psalm 1, that the Messiah, the one who is, who is this, this branch, who is this, this new tree, shall bear this fruit. He is Psalm 1. And then, and then verse 2 here, we have three couplets. So Messiah is going to look like this. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. And then these three couplets. One, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. That'll be with him. This should make us think of Solomon. And he's the, he's the wise king. And so he's, he's going to be this, this ruler who rules with wisdom and understanding. Uh, number two, the, the Spirit of counsel and might. This is, this should, this is like in direct juxtaposition and contrast to how Assyria comes in and they rule over the people of Israel. They rule with excessive force, with brute force, with just um, unrelenting um, violence. And he says, when the Messiah comes, he's going to rule in the spirit of counsel and might. And we're going to talk about what that might looks like later. And then he says, in the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. And that should make us think of the book of Proverbs. Because Proverbs opens up with saying that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, I should say, is the fear of the Lord. So when you think about how accurate your picture of God is, maybe, maybe the question is, do you fear God? Do you know God as mighty God? See, the, the biggest hindrance to you knowing God as mighty God is, is you thinking you're mighty yourself. And, and here's, here's, the, here's the thing we get mixed up a lot. Paul says in, in Colossians chapter 1 that you were made by him, through him, and for him. Do you know that you were made for God? You're kind of like, yeah, well, yeah I, guess, I guess that makes sense. But just think about if you're a Christian in here, if you're a follower of Jesus, think about your prayer life. Do you actually treat God like he was made for you? Think about the things you ask God for. Think about what happens when you don't get those things how you react. You know, uh, what if instead of asking God for something, you asked God to teach you something? What if instead of asking God to do something for you, you said, God, show me what you want me to do in this situation? And when, it's, when it says here that that the Messiah, that the one to come, that he's, he's going to have the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we think about that, this, that the beginning of knowledge is a fear of God. And we have to start with that. You know, you can't start with loving God. A lot of us think, oh, well, I, I know God because I want to start by loving it. Well, no. The Bible says the, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, not the love of the Lord. You know, you can't start with serving the Lord. You can't start with anything else. He says, he says the beginning of it is fearing him. And it says in chapter, in, in uh, verse 3, that his delight 
What he delights in is actually in the fear of the Lord. And uh, we live in a culture that, and, and definitely in a, a, a church culture, but also just a culture in general, where we don't know the fear of the Lord anymore. And we don't know the fear of God. And we try to soften it. We're like, oh, well, it doesn't mean you need to be afraid of God. It just means you, you should revere him. I don't know about you guys. I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually a little afraid of God uh, because uh, I know his might. I know his power. So I have a healthy fear of who God is. It's, I talk about it all the time like this. Uh, my dad, a lot of you guys have met my dad. Um, my dad is a lot like me. Uh, so he's really awesome. <laughs> he's extremely good looking, uh, super intelligent. No, he's, he's a lot like me in personality. So he's, he's very, he's easy to talk to. He's personable. Um, uh, he can make a friend anywhere. Like I, I was in a mattress store with him one time and, uh, <laughs> we were just in there to kill time. It was like a furniture slash mattress store and I was in another part of the store and I'm like looking for my dad later and I come back and he's actually laying down on a mattress with a salesman and they're just, they're not testing out the mattress, they're just talking. I was like, am I interrupting something, dad? Like, <laughs> should I leave you two alone? Um, uh, they're, they're just chilling out in the store. Uh, but growing up, even though my dad's like that, if I did something wrong, if I stepped out of line and my mom said, you wait till your dad gets home. Oh, well, that fear, I knew that fear because I knew my dad's authority, his might, his power, um, and I knew I did not want that. Now, what, what, what compels me to honor my father isn't, isn't necessarily that fear. It's, it's, it began with fear um, when I was a little baby, I'm sure. That's what I did with my, my girls anyways. <laughs> I said, I'm your dad. You obey me. <laughs> uh, uh, but it developed into a loving relationship, right? But it had to start with knowing that he's my father, that he's in a position of authority over me. And this is where, where Jesus starts with God. This is where the Savior starts. He says, I actually delight in the fear of God. Because it's only through that that I understand what his love is. And this is why some of you guys, you want a loving God, but you don't want a God who disciplines. But Hebrews says a loving God is a God who disciplines. And you don't understand that God does that in love because you didn't start with the fear of the Lord. And so when he says he delights in it, if you're going to know God, if you're going to have an accurate picture of God, then you need to delight in the fear of the Lord and knowing that he is a mighty God. And he says, he shall not judge, in verse 3, by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. That's, that's how we judge and that's how we do disputes. But he says, no, he's not going to do it by what his eyes see or his ears hear, but, in verse 4, with righteousness. With righteousness he shall judge administer justice. That's what you should hear when I say that. He shall administer justice and judge the poor. He shall decide with equity. He shall make the, the, the playing field level for the meek of the earth. 
And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. I always laugh when I'm like, man, he's got some kicking breath. He must eat like onions or garlic or something if he's going to kill the wicked with his breath. Um, But what this is talking about is that all he has to do is speak. All the Messiah has to do is speak the word of God. And if you think about this, that should remind you of a few things in the scriptures. This is, this is biblical theology uh, for you guys. Um, everything in the scriptures points back to something else. So when you read something, you shouldn't read it necessarily anew. You should think, well, what does this point back to? Um, and it all, I mean, that's why you've got to know the Old Testament, because you're never going to fully understand the New Testament unless you know the Old Testament. I've said this before, and this is kind of a, a random uh, <laughs> tangent, but the book of Deuteronomy is the key to understanding the scriptures. You guys are like, Deuteronomy? Is that even in the Bible? <laughs> like, the book of Deuteronomy is the key to unlocking your understanding of the scriptures. If you don't know Deuteronomy, you're always going to be like, what does that mean? You're not going to understand Obadiah. You're not going to understand Hosea, Habakkuk. You're not going to understand Jesus. Go back to Deuteronomy. In order to understand Deuteronomy, though, you need to understand Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. <laughs> and then you get to Deuteronomy. And then it's all, it's all open for you. So this is pointing back to something. So when he says, the, the, where is it? Um, the rod of his mouth. This word rod is actually the word for scepter. Like the, the scepter of a ruler, the scepter of a king. And he, he says the Messiah will have this. And this is a direct allusion to Genesis chapter 49 Verse 10, it says the scepter will never pass from the, the Lion of Judah. And this is a, a, prophetic, a prophetic reference to the Messiah. And so he says, all he has to do is speak. This is the word of God in John 1. This is Jesus. This is the word in creation. This is, this is in direct contrast to Moses in the first five books of the Bible when, when God says, hey, Moses, all you have to do is speak to that rock and water is going to come out of it for the people. Moses gets angry, and what does he do? He takes his rod, his scepter, and he strikes the rock. And God says, that is not how I do things. All I have to do is speak, and it happens. And you do not honor me as holy. And now, Jesus, the writer of Hebrews, picks up that he's this greater Moses. All he has to do is speak. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to strike things physically. He does this by the word of his mouth. And righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. It shall gird everything on him. Faithfulness shall, shall hold everything together. He's held together by righteousness and faithfulness. And then we get this picture of new creation. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a child shall lead them. Basically, he's putting a predator with its prey. Wolf and lamb, leopard, goat. The cow and the bear shall graze. You're like, cow and bear? Predator and prey? Uh, YouTube it. There's a YouTube video of a bear in Yellowstone chasing down a cow and eating it. It's kind of gross. But because <laughs> but, uh, I was like, they're not, they're not natural predators and prey. Um, but it's on YouTube, so it's true. Um, so the cow and the bear... The young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. 
the weaned child shall put his hand on the adders or the viper's den. And you have this picture of new creation, that something is happening, that the people of Israel have finally died to themselves, and God is raising them up through this new Israel, through this Messiah, to be this light, this redwood to the nations, to point to the grandeur and awe and majesty of God. That's who we're supposed to be as the church. That's who you're supposed to be as an individual, as part of the church. You're supposed to point people to God by just the way you live and move and speak. People are supposed to see God's awe and majesty and grandeur and might in you just because of the way that you live and move and speak. And he's creating this anew for the people of Israel Now, he had to tear down a lot in order to build it back up. He had to wound them in order to heal them, as Hosea says. He had to char them down, like take them all the way down so that he could say, the stump of Jesse is here. And some of you guys are battling sin right now. That's your impossible situation. You're, You're battling lust. You're battling anger. You think... Every opportunity you take to, to put yourself above somebody else, you take it. Uh, you're in unhealthy relationships. You're in wrong relationships. Wh- whatever, whatever your sin that you're struggling with right now. And, and the only thing that's stopping you from fulfilling that, that desire, is just lack of opportunity. I'm mean, thinking about the, the leopard and the young goat. The leopard is made... to to eat this thing. He's got claws and teeth and it's in his blood, right? It's his nature. You put those two in a cage and that thing gets devoured immediately. You put you in the same room as your sin and you're going to devour it immediately. And here we have a picture of the Messiah taking what's in the leopard's nature and, and doing something new with it, changing it. The leopard has died to himself, and and now he has a new nature. He has a new purpose. He's living to something different and something new. He knows his new identity, and it's not in fulfilling and satiating his desires. It's in Christ. And he says this is a picture of who we're supposed to be in our cities, who the church is supposed to be, who the Messiah has made us to be. Now, some of you guys, your impossible situation is you're actually the, the goat. You're being devoured by the leopard. You're being devoured by mental illness, by physical illness, by your financial situation, by something that somebody has done to you. And this passage is the same thing to you, that he's given you a new nature. You're no longer bound by fear. You can actually be in the same cage as that leopard because Jesus has overcome. The mighty God has overcome that leopard. And you don't have to be afraid any longer. And your identity is no longer in your illness. Your identity isn't what somebody said about you. Your identity isn't in your failures or your sin or your weaknesses. It's in Christ. In impossible situations, you have to remind yourself, and this is why we talk about identity in Christ over and over, that your identity is in Christ, that you are a son or daughter of Christ. If you are in Jesus, 
He is who you are. Colossians 3 says your life is Christ. Your life is hidden in him. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've crucified myself with him. I've been crucified with Christ that it is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus does for us. That's, that's the good news that Jesus comes to give us. Where you no longer have to be worried about your leopard, where if you're the leopard, you no longer have to devour your, your sin, that your identity is in Christ. You know, my grandfather was a POW in World War II, and what they teach military personnel, when they're put in impossible situations, do you know what they teach them? They teach them to say who they are over and over and over again. I'm so-and-so from so-and-so. My number is blah, 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 blah. And, and, and they just say that when they're in this impossible situation. And that's because it does something for them psychologically and emotionally and mentally and, and physically even. And that's the gift we have in Christ, that in your situation, whatever it is, cancer, depression, anxiety, sin, lust, broken relationships. If you're in Christ, he's given you a new identity. He's given you a new destiny, a new purpose. And here's the thing. Oftentimes we want to, we want to, we want to be removed from that impossible situation. And Isaiah says this in, in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, how long? He says, how long, O oh Lord, am I, are we going to be here we don't want to be here. And God oftentimes doesn't remove you from it because he's trying to build something in you. He's trying to grow a sprout. He's trying to grow new life. He's trying to grow a redwood out of you. And instead of saying to Isaiah, well, it's going to be over soon, he says this to him. He says, this is how long, until the cities lie waste, until the land is desolate, until the people are far away. And even though a tenth remain, it will be burned again. But when the stump is left, he says, then you'll see the holy seed. And you can trace this word seed through the entire scriptures. It's the offspring. It's, it's Genesis 3.15. It's the Messiah. It's the Savior. It's the one who comes to rescue us. He says, when that happens, you'll see the holy seed. And he says this in, in, chap, in verse 10 of chapter 11. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, a redwood for all the peoples, his resting place shall be glorious. And so God invites you into his rest this morning. Whatever your impossible situation is, know that if you're in Christ, just repeat to yourself over and over, I'm a daughter of God. I'm a son of God. I am in him. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting father. He is prince of peace. I know that's who he is. I know his character. I know he, he's pursuing me. I know his love. I know that he's a good God. I know that he's wonderful. I know that he's holy. I know that I'm in him. And you'll find rest in that. And so this Advent season, that's what we're inviting you in, into his rest, into his glorious rest, it says. Rest like you've never experienced this, this, his presence. 
So this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news is that you can be a partaker in the rest of God. And that even in your impossible situation, you can experience that. Because you know that there is a better country that awaits you. You know that God is doing something for his glory. And he wants to use you to accomplish that.